When Holly and I, my wife had, and I, had gone through several rounds of ministry and seminary here around the general Midwest, early in our married lives, while my oldest daughter was just uh, in the womb, uh, we moved out to Colorado, uh, the place where the Rockies shine over you every day. We were sort of on the front porch of the front range there. And as a person who loves the outdoors, I was very excited to be there. Colorado is the kind of state where you can hike and fish and camp all you want for the rest of your life and never have touched all of it and never get bored of it. On my porch, just outside my door, I would sometimes carry a cup of coffee out in the morning, a cup of tea, go stand in the very corner, and if I leaned just right around the crowded houses, I could get just a glimmer of those Rocky Mountains far away to the west. But I wanted to get there, and I wanted to be in them. I remember one of the uh, first trails I wanted to hit was called the Four Pass Loop Trail. It begins at the base of the Maroon Bells Mountains. Have you ever heard of those? They're the most, supposedly, the most photographed mountainscape in the United States, the Maroon Bells. Starts at this little beaver pond before you start hiking up. So I, I recruited a friend of mine there who was a native to Colorado, born actually in the mountains. Who else better to go with you into the mountains than a mountain man? And we planned this little weekend hike. It's only a 30-mile or so hike, 40 if you do extra trails around the edge. We got up to the bottom of that beautiful scape. It was gorgeous. We got all of our stuff together. We started, of course, in Denver at 5,000 feet. We went up to 9,000 feet or so to the base of this hike. And the first pass was 12,500 feet. So we got out of the car. We got our stuff together. We started hiking up this switchback trail up to the top of the first pass. Buckskin Pass is the name of it, as I recall. On the way up, both of us are struggling. Of course, the air is getting thinner. Oxygen is getting harder to have. The weight of the packs is there. It was a hot, uh, pure, sunny day. The sun was beating down on us without as much space in between us and the sun. I don't know if that makes it hotter, but it seems like it when you're up there. We were both struggling. We were going slow, and eventually you're just barely putting one foot in front of the other. But we got up to the top of Buckskin Pass, and you can look one direction and see mountains as far as you want, and look the other direction and see where you come from. You feel like you could just see as far as you want. I'm just standing in awe. I didn't even take off my pack yet, just turning like I was doing one of those panoramic shots, you know, but just with my mind. Taking it all in, when I heard my friend from Colorado say, I'm done. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I'm done, man. I got to go back to the truck. We had another 25 miles, 20 miles, something like that to go. This was just the first pass of the four-pass loop trail. What part of that name didn't you understand, man? No, oh, man, I'm done. That's enough. This is good. This is beautiful. But, man, that killed me. I'm done. I got to go back to the truck. Well, he was my ride home, and he was my only hiking companion. So unless I wanted to hike a whole weekend not knowing how I was going to make it back, I was going to go back to the truck too. This happened not once but twice. Recruiting a Colorado mountain-born native to try to hike the mountains. And both of them quit with me on the first pass. I was mentioning this story in the lunchroom to a couple friends of mine who'd moved out from Indiana as well. Who's your natives? Can I get a cheer for Indiana land? 
they moved out and, and, and were joining, you know, other lowlanders joining uh, Mead out there looking at the highlands. And they heard the story, they laughed, and I said, we'll go. So we prepared, and I'm thinking, these guys are in much worse shape than those first two guys. They were, they were in terrible shape. But we packed up our stuff, we went, we had a weekend, we, we took off, we got to that same little beaver pond and started hiking the way up, and we're not even halfway up, and I can hear one of my friends behind me saying, man, Dave, I'm not in a good place, man. <laughs> we got a few more feet, he says, man, Dave, I'm really not in a good place, man. And then he just kept saying it, like became a mantra, I'm not in a good place. A few more feet, I'm not in a good place. Take a breath. I finally take his pack, and he's still saying, I'm not in a good place. I'm carrying his pack and mine. And then I hand back my walking sticks with, to him. He didn't have walking sticks, so he's got my walking sticks, no pack, and it's, I'm not in a good place, man. I'm not in a good place, man. <laughs> We get up to the top of the pass, Buckskin Pass, same pass, 12,500 feet. He falls flat on his back with, with, with nothing in his hands. He tosses the sticks and falls just flat back and lays on the ground with a big grunt. And I'm thinking, okay, here we go. The other friend of mine is just sitting on a rock, breathing heavily, looking down the other side of the trail. Well, take in as much as you can, Dave. This is all we're going to see, the one pass of the four passes. <laughs> and then I hear behind me, my friend, laying on the ground, call out, I'm on top of the world! <laughs> just like that. And I knew we were good. Before long, we're strapping packs back on. He's got a picture. I got a picture of him and my other friend, the three of us there, grinning ear to ear, hiking down and surviving hailstorms and everything else that happened to us along the way. We made the whole four-pass loop trail. For some reason, the people uh, who had lived their whole life seeing those mountains just within reach had enough when they got one glimpse of it for one day. But the people who'd been living their whole lives in the lowlands did not think it was enough to just get one glimpse for one day. They wanted to dwell there for a while. But here's the question I think I want to ask you. Uh, I think sometimes we're stuck in the lowlands spiritually and emotionally speaking, and we can see the highlands, but we can't figure out how to get there, and we don't know who can help us get there. There's lowland and highland proverbs, for example. In the book of Proverbs, you'll find sets of proverbs that I think the first half is a lowland, the second half is a highland, and when I'm reading them, sometimes I'm saying, yeah, but how do I get from here to there? I'll have a couple of them on the screen for you. So the first one, Proverbs 13, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's the lowland. And then here's the highland, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Great, I love to be in the highland, but here I am in the hope deferred. The second one, all the days of the oppressed are wretched. There's a lowland. But the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Now how do we get from the days of the oppressed that are wretched to the heart that's cheerful that has a continual feast? And who can help us get there? I think we are more often stuck in between the lowlands and the highlands than we want to admit than when, when we're in church. We want 
to say everything's wonderful and beautiful here, right? How are you? Doing fine. Great. Thanks. Good to see you. Happy to see you. Laugh. Ha ha. Out the door. But more often than not, we are stuck in between the two halves of those Proverbs, wanting to know, how do I get from here to there? Can somebody go with me, please? And give me more than a glimpse. That's where Sarah is. Genesis chapter 18. That's where she is. Now, she's not going to stay there the whole time today, but I wanted to read this passage before we get to the highlands part of her life so that we understand it more deeply, so that it's not just a Pollyanna faith that we're talking about. She's in a deep lowland. Think about it. She is a woman in that ancient world who has a barren womb. What a terrible phrase. That's the words that hang over her. In a society in which women don't have as much freedom, there's a lot of redemption that still has to happen for the results of the fall to start being redeemed to be where we are now, and we still have a long way to go. For her, for then, bearing a child meant you were a good woman. You fill in the rest. It's not right. It just was. I'm sorry to mention something that I know is painful for some, but unless I get you there with where Sarah is, you won't fully understand. She's in a terrible place of the sickened heart. And this isn't just early in her life. So she's been promised a child. The child has never come. So she thinks it must have just been for Abraham, right? They go through all those years of childbearing years, and the child doesn't come. Child doesn't come. She finally says, look, Abraham, the promise must have been for you. It must be about you. You're supposed to be the father of many. Take Hagar, my servant. You make it happen. It's okay. I get it. Common practice of the time. You remember, we've been in this series for a little while, but I'm trying to catch you in. If you haven't been there, catch you back into the story, yes? Hasn't it been a good series, by the way? This has been rich. I've loved it. Uh, so there she is in the midst of this deep and dark time, and she feels as though this promise isn't for her. We're not even sure if Abraham from chapter 17 goes to Sarah yet and tells her the promise that he received in 17. Don't call her Sarai anymore, call her Sarah. There's no mention of it in the text. He may have, he may not have. Even if he has, she may not believe it. Now, when I've read this text before, I've always thought of Abraham as the main character. Is that true for you? I've always thought of Abraham is the one who gets first billing. You know, he's the, the big name on the movie screen. He's the one that you want to come see the movie for. It's Abraham, right? But in Genesis chapter 18, she's not an extra. She's the main character. And it makes it very clear. But when I first started reading this passage, it didn't seem that way to me. And I wonder if it didn't seem that way to Sarah. I wonder if he, she felt she was pretty much ignored. But notice in the passage, if you have it, look back at it if it's in front of you. Genesis chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to the tent. Everything makes sense. Abraham's the main story. There God appears to Abraham. That makes sense. Heat of the day, Abraham looked up, saw three men standing nearby. He hurries to them, runs to them. It says it several times, runs to them. 
Okay, Abraham's a good host. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. But then listen to what they say all the way down after the meal has been handed, after he served them, the first words they initiate, verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? The first words the Lord say that aren't in response to Abraham is, where's Sarah? Well, she's in the tent. That's where the Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern woman was supposed to be. She's not allowed to be out there in that conversation. It's not like she was hiding. She wasn't allowed to be there. She's in the tent. And then the promise is delivered. She will have a child. This time, next year, I'll be coming back. In other words, these three visitors appear not for Abraham. They appear for Sarah. When they're done delivering their message to Sarah, they leave. Everything else that happens on behalf of Abraham is given to us in the story as if it was accidental. So here's the first thing I realize from all of this. God is not ignoring. God is not ignoring Sarah. And if you're in the middle of the lowlands right now, you have some hope deferred that is causing your heart to be sick. I guarantee you, you have been tempted to feel that God is ignoring you. Am I right? It's not just Sarah way back then. But God is not ignoring even when it may seem that way. And perhaps that's the only reason I'm here today and the rest doesn't matter if that's you. For me to be one of the messengers who comes and says, no, 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 God is not ignoring you. You might also think that God is coming to rebuke Sarah. That's the way I've always read it in the past. Sometimes that's the label that's given to it, even in our talking about it in Christian circles, God's rebuke of Sarah, because she laughs silently to herself, did you hear the reading, and then says to herself in the tent, oh, we're old, now we're going to have a baby. And God says, why did you laugh? He doesn't say, stop laughing. He doesn't even say, this isn't laughable. He kind of knows it is. (laughs) God's not rebuking Sarah. That's not what he's doing. We'll get to what he's doing, but that is not what he's doing. And if in the midst of your lowlands, you have been expressing your feelings, dealing with your internal wrestling, even internally talking to God and the way Sarah was saying things in her mind, God, are you kidding me? God's not rebuking you either. He's doing something else. Sarah, I think, was tempted to think God and everyone around her was mocking her. These three visitors must have been sent to poke the bruise. Are you kidding me? You're going to come out here and talk to me about I'm going to have a child. I've heard this again. And I'm beyond the way of women. That's what the text says. You know what that means. Things that normally happen every month aren't happening anymore. When they don't happen, you're not worried. There's no quick donkey ride to CVS to get a test.
See, it is laughable. And she feels like the whole world is now laughing at me. But God's not mocking her. That's not what God is doing. But let's examine a little bit more why she feels this way. I think it's important. I want to put a chart up here on the screen. Uh, I think we have it. It's going to play a little bit with what Pastor Steve has been giving. I think you'll see the themes if you've been following in the series. Um, But uh, what's going on is there's a promise above. There's her lack of capacity below. Uh, Let's go to the next part. And then there's expectations that she has and judgments of others coming from the outside. When I was in kindergarten, um, I had to learn how to use these. Now, we've all used them for so long, we forget how hard it is to do this. Did you, do you remember how hard it was to finally learn how to use scissors? Scissors, if you just go real lightly like this, they don't cut. They just bend the paper usually. Do you remember? God bless all of the kindergarten teachers and first grade teachers and preschool teachers who teach us so many things we've even forgotten we had to learn. Yeah? Well, to use scissors right, you have to have pressure from up and down and you have to squeeze that metal together at the same time. There's pressure up and down. There's the pressure you don't think about, though, and that's from the outside, squeezing them in. And when you squeeze from the top and the bottom, and you squeeze from the outside in, slice. And that's my picture or image of what's going on for Sarah. She has a promise from above, this divine promise, but as she looks at it and she looks at herself, she says, I don't have the capacity to achieve that promise. I don't have the capability for this to happen. Not only do I not think I'm capable, now I know I never will be capable. It's impossible for me. And from the outside, from the human realm, from the horizontal plane, she has expectations of others that she keeps disappointing. She has the judgments that she reads in other people's eyes. When the women are just together and the veils are off, she can read their faces. She knows what they think. And when you get cut in that kind of double squeeze, you can get a cutting, dark, sarcastic cynicism that starts to sicken your heart. When you live in that too long and there is no remedy, that is what happens every time. You develop that dark, cutting, sarcastic cynicism. Have you ever heard it come out of your own mouth? Or am I the only one? Sarah is in the deepest lowland of her life. How does she get out? Well, what is God doing? That's what we need to talk about. God isn't uh, ignoring her. He's doing something else. Let's talk about it. God is, first of all, revealing her. (laughs) That's what he's doing. There she is, hidden in the tent, in the dark, behind the flap, silently laughing. Silently speaking to herself. Hidden away. And this is one of the first signs we know these aren't just ordinary visitors, right? Abraham had to run from the tent to get to them. She's back at the tent, far enough away. How could they ever have heard this? (laughs) From that far away. 
but they do. God isn't ignoring. God is seeing. God is hearing. God is listening. And now God is revealing, bringing what is hidden, bringing what is in the dark, bringing what she wants to conceal out into the surface, out into the light. And that's healing, even though it doesn't feel like it at first. It's healing. Second, God is redirecting. Have you ever noticed that the best guides for you in your life usually guide you with a question? not a statement. The people who want to throw statements at you don't ever seem to really help you. You just bristle against it, defend against it. But if somebody asks you the right question, you know the answer. Sarah, why, 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 why are you laughing? Revealing what's going on in her. Is anything too difficult for God? She already knows the answer to that question. And it shifts her thinking. Instead of thinking, is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too difficult for me? Of course, this is impossible for me. It shifts her thinking already. What's possible for God? He's redirecting. Why are you laughing? Not, it's bad to laugh. There's a reason to laugh. For which reason are you laughing, Sarah? And God is redeeming. God is redeeming Sarah. You have to read a little bit forward now. I think we have the next text on the screen. Do we have Genesis 21? There it is. If you were to jump forward to Genesis 21, which is really sort of the heartbeat of this message, but we had to set it up. If you get to Genesis 21, you see, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. That's who he is. As he had said and did for Sarah what he had promised, Sarah became pregnant, bore a son to Abraham, <laughs> in his old age, at the very time God had promised. Abraham gave him the name he laughs, Yitzhak, the same Hebrew word when Abraham fell on his face and laughed at the promise of God. The same Hebrew word when Sarah in the tent laughed to herself at the promise of God. Isaac gets that name. Who's the one laughing? I used to think it was Isaac. I think it's God. Sarah said, God brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me, not at me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham? who's supposed to be the main character of the story, and here I am. That Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Abraham, father of multitudes. Sarah, mother of many nations. Parallel. Isn't that beautiful? God isn't taking what is darkest and least desirable about her and rebuking it and judging it and condemning it and saying, stop that. No, he's revealing it, bringing it to the surface, uncovering it, redirecting it, and redeeming it. That's who God is, isn't it? Is that who your God is? Now, we have to fill in some things with Christian knowledge from all over scripture to try to figure out all of what God might be doing for us in similar ways for Sarah. I hope you'll trust me to do that. I'm not gonna throw 30 scripture verses up on the screen. Is that okay with you? 
I think, though, when you hear how we can follow along in the footsteps of what God is doing, it'll resonate as so true to you and so simple and so obvious that you won't need a verse. But before we get there, I'd like to talk to you about roofing. (laughs) This is step flashing. Anybody in here know what step flashing is? Nice. I have a few friends. So when you go up onto the roof that has a leak at a seam, what you often will find in that seam is not these little pieces alternatingly under the shingles. Often what you'll find is some contractor somewhere along the way to get it done cheap and to get it done fast has thrown in what they call L flashing, a 10-foot long channel of the same kind of material underneath the shingles. The people who know step flashing are nodding. They want to give me an amen, but they're not sure this is spiritual yet. <laughs> that cheap stuff, when you, it runs the water underneath the surface of the shingles. Now call me crazy, but I think the purpose of roofing is to keep water on top of the shingles. And if you put any pressure on that L flashing, anywhere along the way, it will bend and buckle. Look at this stuff. This stuff isn't too tough to bend. And when it bends even slightly, starts to form little pinholes that slowly seep over time and leak underneath the underlayment of the roof until you get that telltale brown spot along the tape of your drywall. Have you had that happen? Ah, we are in Indiana, right? Rain, rain, rain. It's coming. It's already started. So then you have to go up with this. Take out that L flashing, pull out the shingles, and start to alternate this step flashing. One step at a time, alternating it so that the water then hits the step flash, gets kicked back out onto the surface of the shingles. And and you have a shingle on top, and it's more step flashing. Shingle on top, more step flashing. So it never goes more than three or four inches, not 10 feet, before the water's kicked back out onto the surface. That's good roofing. These are 40 cents. They charge a $500 rate. <laughs> Here's why I'm saying that. I think we need step flashing in our spiritual roofing. And most of us are living with 10-foot long channels, and things are staying underneath the surface of our roofing for way too long. It's being submerged. It's being hidden. It's being kept in the dark because we're embarrassed. We're ashamed. We're afraid. So we say, no, I didn't laugh. No, I'm not mad. No, I'm not cynical. No, I'm not frustrated. No, I'm not questioning God. No, I'm not doubting. I'm fine. How are you? Good to see you. We're the donuts. Need some comfort food. Let's talk about the step flash. Go to the next slide, would you? These are the things I think you need in your life that I would gather from all over Scripture, but also they're being hinted at in Genesis chapter 18, what God is trying to do for Sarah. Do you have friendships of the soul? I am not asking you to give me the holy nod and say these things are good. You already know they're good. I'm asking you, do you have them right now? Friendships of the soul are those kind of friendships where you can go easily and quickly into deep matters, where you talk about things that are touching your inner core. You can say to this person, I'm not in a good place. I'm not in a good place. And you can keep saying, I'm not in a good place. And they keep walking with you. Do you have friendships of the soul that go deep? Not just people who talk about politics or the weather or the last sporting game or your hobby. People who talk about the deeper matters that are leaking inside yourself. 
Do you have accountability? Not do you think accountability is a good idea. Do you regularly sit down with one at the most two people and ask deep, tough, difficult questions and answer them honestly? Bringing out onto the shingling of your spiritual world the things you're tempted to keep hidden. I treasure my accountability partner. I have one of the best I've ever had in my life. And part of the reason is we keep asking questions we didn't used to ask in accountability. He asks me things like, Dave, are there, are there anything, is there anything in your life you haven't forgiven yourself for? Isn't that a good question? What's God saying to you in all that's going on? What's he doing to draw you closer to him? What are the temptations you're facing? And there's another list of questions. Do you have people with whom you're accountable in a very close way? Not do you think it's a good idea. Not do you teach other people to have it. Do you have it now? Small group discipleship. When you're in a small community of people that is a safe place where you can share and you're trying to grow together in Christ, some people have something that you want to be more like than you are yourself. Hopefully they see something in you they would like to be more like than they are themselves. And together you keep working towards God. Do you have a small group of people? If it's more than 15, I wouldn't call it small. Hard to share. Do you have a spiritual guide, somebody who asks those good questions? Well, why? Tell me why. Just tell me why. Why are you laughing? Why are you angry? Why are you frustrated? What's going on? What exactly is it that you're hoping for that isn't coming through? What's God? Do, do you have somebody in your life, a mentor, a discipler, who's guiding you, or have you moved beyond that? <laughs> yeah. I'm not asking, do you think these are good things for somebody to have? Do you have them now? If not, God is coming to you. You're in the tent, and he's saying, would you come out a little bit? God's coming to you, and he's saying, there's an L channel in your life. You know why it's leaking inside. You know where that stain's coming from, but you're scared to death to bring it onto the surface. It's time we start stair-stepping it for you. Go to the next slide. If you're resisting, this is why I think you might be. You've had those people before, but they weren't this. You've had people who were supposedly those for you, those spiritual friendships, soul friendships, the, the accountability partners, the small groups, but they weren't listeners. They were talkers. They didn't work with understanding, trying to understand you and get you. Instead, they wanted you to understand what they had to say and probably weren't grace givers. You really don't need to spend too much time with people who don't have faces of grace. Pray for them. Try to influence them. Don't make them your absolute closest friendship on who you rely I didn't mean for this to happen. This is kind of cheesy, but it'll help you remember it. Lug. When, when you, I didn't mean for it. I saw it this morning. When you go hiking, you have lug, lug soles that have those bumps on them that help you get a good grip. It's super cheesy. It's terrible. I hardly ever do this, but here I am. There I am. What you need is those lugs in your life. Do you have them? 
people who, with whom you can say, I'm not in a good place. I'm not in a good place. And then you can say, I'm on top of the world. Going back and forth and back and forth, feasting on life together. For me, it's a feast when a friend shares their deepest, most difficult moments. It's not a burden. A friend texted me back after a call this Thursday. He was going through a scary time. And he said, thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time. I said, are you kidding me? It was my joy, my exact text to him. It was. What a joy. I was lifted strangely by having someone trust me again in that deep friendship. It was a blessing. See, the cheerful heart isn't just the frothy, surfacy, laughing at stuff heart. It's the heart that has the continual feast of deep community, deep faith, trusting that the Lord is king. Let the earth be glad. Even when things don't work out in this life, this isn't the life we're living for anyway. It's actually the shortest of the two. When we surround ourselves with lugs <laughs> and we have the step flashing going in our life, it's not as though the emotional rain doesn't hit us. It falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's that it keeps getting kicked out onto the surface in healthy ways. It keeps getting dealt with and God can redirect it and redeem it. He wants to do that for you. Will you let him? Will you let us? We are going to take a feast today. The feast of communion. It's World Communion Day. They're going to set that up in a moment. But my way of setting that up and ending the sermon is this. I want the amen of the sermon today to be laughter. Because God is laughing. He is playing. He's playing a great cosmic game where over and over again he tricks us. Right after it seems too late, the waters part. Right after it's impossible, the baby's born. Right after God is dead, he's resurrected. And he laughs again.